All right. This week we have two-time All-American Corey Murphy uh, on the podcast, just talking about his experiences through uh, high school, college, and how he got to be the thrower that he was. The very, very beginning. So, what was the uh, what made you start throwing? Like, why did you start? Uh, the reason I started throwing actually wasn't anything track related. I wanted to do. I started track because I wanted to get in shape for football. Since I got cut the previous year so like there were tryouts for seventh grade football very important and i didn't make the team but what really got me was that a girl made the team over i over me making the team mm-hmm. so you know i went home i sat in my uh my bathroom and cried on the floor for about an hour and then i was like all right well this shit's never gonna happen again so when it comes time again i'll be ready so uh, i did track originally just so i could lose weight and then so i was like you know, more athletic, quote unquote. Then I actually hit puberty at the same time. So then I like thinned out and got taller. So it wasn't as much of a scrub. And I made, <laughs> then I made a team. But I, I kept doing track the entire time. You know, and then when I went to eighth grade, ninth grade, I continued doing track. Eighth grade, I, I picked up a shot for the first time. Seventh grade, I didn't do it because I was trying to lose weight. Um, but then eighth grade, I was like, ah, you know, I don't really need to lose any more weight. So let's do something else. So I, I went from triple jumping and running to throwing. Very very long. interesting transition. I wasn't a very good triple jumper for uh, just for your information, but I I've, I've okay. seen you try. I've seen you when we did triple bounds that were double leg. <laughs> those were they were that was the yeah. only thing you were worse than me at. In my defense, I was much lighter at the time, so Yeah. Take 100 pounds off when I probably did those triple bounds. Mm-hmm. But uh but yeah, that was the reason why I well, ended up started throwing. If you had started throwing, like, for college, like, ninth and 10th grade, I did it, but I also did wrestling, and I preferred wrestling much more. But then we had a guy who was a state champ and a national champ in my weight class. So it was like, am I going to continue to do wrestling and always be, like, overshadowed by him, or am I going to pick something where I can potentially be the best? Exactly, yeah. Maybe it's a cop-out, but, like, when someone has 10 plus years of experience over you and you know coaches are obviously gonna you know give them more time than they're gonna give you it's like how much are you gonna get out of it so at that point i kind of had to give up wrestling i I still did football but i gave up wrestling got a lot of shit for it from everybody literally coach coaches one coach came up to me said this is gonna be you're gonna regret this decision for the rest of your life the wrestling coach said that to me it's funny after i graduated i said i don't think i regretted my decision to quitting wrestling at this point, I was like an all-American uh, high school, whatever that means, you know. But yeah. New Balance all-American, I'll, I'll put that. Got your New Balance bag. Exactly, New Balance bag, my crown, you know, living large. Yeah, you know, things I never did. It's whatever. I'm not salty. NCAA all-American, first team all-American is what matters. That's what we're going for. So, going to do a little split off. I... It's the first thing I thought of when I thought of you. You you have what what is your theory about really good throwers? And I know you have this theory because most of the ones you spoke to have this background. And I want to see if you can think of what I'm thinking of. Your theory. Uh, you always spoke about this. Well, I'd say rhythm. I, I like music. That was that was my thing that I always connected throwing to, just because it's about rhythm and it it's if you've ever done music if you've ever been a part of like band or chorus or something, you have to you have to you're a part of something bigger so you have to think of it like 
my my normal thing is when you're thinking about when I'm thinking about a throw, I think about like a crescendo, like constantly growing and getting to the point of like where it can't get any louder. Now you compare that to like throwing where it's like you want to accelerate the entire way through the throw and not have these like hiccups where you're slowing down and then speeding back up. So I, I, I hope that's what you were thinking. I was thinking of that's exactly. Yeah. But the um, Murphy musical concept is what I've been calling it. You know, it, the, the other thing that I, I like about it is that it promotes like smoothness. It's, it's like, there are moments in music where you, you're not smooth and it's choppy, but the, like, if you think of like classical music, uh, you think of like, it's, it's a slow growth or a slow decline. There's not like, it doesn't go one end to the other. And a lot of, some people, you know, think like everything's like strength based and oriented, but the rhythm of, you talk to anyone, rhythm's more important sometimes than it is to be strong. So I, that, that's, that's how I view sometimes where I've excelled over other people is that I have that thought process rather uh-huh. than, you know, just, oh, get in the throw and, you know, get, get into the circle and throw, like, throw hard or throw, like, be forceful at the end. Like, that just never really fit my temperament, I guess. Uh-huh. So I wanted to ask you, we trained, well, not together, we were in different event groups, but in the same area for three years, well, two, three years, but I wanted to know what one of your favorite moments in training was, either in the weight room or throwing or like a technical breakthrough. Honestly, you weren't there for it. So I, this is a little different. So you, you'll never, you never saw me my freshman year, but uh, my freshman year, I was a mess, absolute mess. Like Abe, like hated me sometimes because I was like off the wall yelling like not yelling in like how I yell you know I'm yelling like yelling, <laughs> yeah like having a temper tantrum because I just couldn't understand like what was going wrong with my throw it was all like wonky and like eventually it started getting better and like I was like throwing decently and then one day it was after a meet and Torello we, we went into one of those far boiling gyms and Torello just started like yelling at us not not like he was just like you guys are really not putting it putting everything together and you guys are really just you just suck and he's like when we get to conferences you know it's gonna be a slap in the face because some of you are gonna look back and be like well i could have done more or i you know you're just not putting it together and that, that that is a personal thing so i i actually was getting viciously angry when he was talking because like all i'm thinking of is like i went from being a 60 plus foot shot putter in high school and i can i can't even break fit i haven't even broke 50 feet yet in, in, in a competition or even in training so it's like i'm I, i'm just thinking i'm like this isn't me i don't fucking suck like I, i'm good like i just need to put it together so i was like angry so like we we went back to we so we left boiling so that was like our 245 meeting and we went back to the circle everyone starts warming up Nope. I just said, I'm not warming up. I'm going into the circle and throwing right now. And it was just so funny because as I'm warming up, I'm like, like everything was moving a lot better and feeling better. And then by the time that I got to my fulls, everyone was uh, like at the circle ready to go. And then they see me throwing and like first throw is like 55. Meanwhile, the best I had thrown before that was 49. Like even in practice or in a competition, I threw 55. And uh, I, I remember Tevin goes, oh, was that a 14? I was like, no, that was a 16. Like, I, I, like I was, I was so excited, and Abe was like, Abe, like, did his like, he was standing there, like, his one single clap, like, oh, like Corey's finally getting it. And, you know, that, that was probably one of my favorite moments because it was like, I, I just needed to get out of my head and just put it together. So, uh, but yeah, I, 
other than that, the only favorite training moment was probably before NCAAs, which I didn't, it, w- it wasn't my favorite moment until after because it really had nothing to do with me. Uh, I think Heisman and Drew moved the circle up. So, like, and I didn't notice, like, they moved the circle up a little bit before NCAAs. It was either before NCAAs or before Max. And they moved the circle up so it looked like I was throwing further than I was. So, like, it, like and I didn't know until well after the fact. So, it was for indoors. And uh, so I was, was like, so I was thinking, like, I was throwing, like, 1930 every single throw. And I was, like, I, honestly, I hadn't had the greatest two meets before. I had ICs where I threw, like, 1840. And then, uh, uh, USA's were actually 1790, not really the greatest uh, competition of mine that season. But uh, I, I, was, I just felt on, and I didn't even realize that I wasn't really that on. But like they, like from that thing, I like I went into NCAA's with a lot more confidence in myself. So that, that was probably the only other you know favorite moment. Lifting didn't never really got me the same way as you know a throwing moment. It's just not gonna. Yeah, it'll, it'll never do it for me as much, but. Oh, well, I did bench 365, and I got hyped because I just never could. I always was like that like last week. No, no, no. It's like this is junior year or senior year. Uh, I had okay. I always done like 355, 360, but I never could hit 365. And then, like I got 365 easily, and I was like I was so hyped. But I, then I deleted the audio on it, so that was kind of a disappointment. But yeah. Okay. Uh, but yeah, those are I guess my favorite training moments. Yeah, I, I do remember. Right before, I want to. I think it was Max. I'm pretty sure it was Max. Like I have, I have a sneaking suspicion that it was Max because I remember. I can remember them doing that too. Yeah, they. they I think they did it for one, but they might have done it for both. I, I, I didn't know. But they, and then know. I think Christian did it outdoor too. He like changed your measurement when he was when you were like, how far was this one? He he he. I think he added like. 30 or 40 he was tell he tells me all this stuff like well after yeah, like he was he did that for heisman he did it for you i'm like, I'm like okay like cool it just gives you a lot more confidence going oh in. yeah especially if there's no like no lines or anything or there is lines and you move the circle or you just you know it, it gives a lot more confidence to you thinking that you're doing the right thing and realistically if you were going into a competition your throw is going to be that far much further anyways so just going into it with more confidence i think is just you know mm-hmm. It can go. It can go both ways. You can you can do the the Abe where you add like a meter and a half where you're like, no, that wasn't it. <laughs> you just yeah. like, yeah. but like when you do like something subtle like that, like you know, 30, 40 centimeters, like it, it goes a long way. You know, it's you, saying like, oh, it was seventeen ninety. to going, it was eighteen thirty. You know, that that that's a huge, that's a know, big difference. Huge mental barrier there that you you're overcoming. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. That's, yeah, that would be. You know, I remember those. Uh... Well, I didn't. I didn't know the distance exactly, but it was. I want to say the week before conferences this year, or sometime close. The last indoor meet we had, so it might have been the week before conference. I think. Okay. And I was warming. And so me and Christian laid the lines, the white lines. Like he did the snappy chalk thing on the ground. It made the white line. We rolled them out. I didn't really know what the distance was, but I had a warm up. Not you know warm ups don't count, but this was just Christian saying like this is what you can do. Where is it? Had a warm up off a little bit to the left of center. It was like outside of the lines, and I'm like, eh, whatever. He looks at me and he was like, Montel, do you know how far that was? I'm like, no. What's up, Smalls? He was like, Montel, the end of the line was 1998, and you passed it by like half a meter. I was like, what? 
Like, these are the things that happen, and they go, whoo, but they come back, you know? But that's a, uh, that's one of the next, more like the opposite of, but next thing I wanted to ask you was, what's one of the biggest things you've had to overcome either in life or in this sport? So like a major, uh, like a big setback or something like that? Well, life, I'm not going to say there hasn't been much. Uh, it's not like I have something like my mom and dad and sister have always been supportive of me. My dad literally will go like, you know, he, he paid for my housing. Like I didn't have to pay for school cause I had full scholarship between, you know, athletic and academic. academic so, yeah. Like, you know, they paid for my housing, which was really the only thing like that I would have had to worry about anyways. But so I, I feel like I've been really fortunate in life and not had to have nearly as many stresses as some other people who have to like, you know, pay for their housing or pay for their, you know, tuition, you know, those kind of things. That, that adds a huge amount of stress and not having that definitely was not a detriment to me. It was definitely, you know, a benefit going into, you know, being so dedicated to track. Like, like for Dan or Brandon, an example, two of the guys on the team for anybody watching, um, like they have to like pay for their own housing. They have to pay for their own stuff all the time. So it's like, you know, they have a lot more responsibilities on their plate than I, I necessarily did. Like for me, it was like, I always wanted to make sure that, if my mom and dad are going to sacrifice their money to make me, you know, have all this time to focus on what I'm doing, then I'm going to make the most of it and not have it be like, oh, and not be like some other college kid where it's like, oh, I'm just going to college and having a good time. Like, that's never how I really thought about it. So, like, for me, I never had that. But um, for overcoming stuff in training, it definitely was letting go of my pride in lifting because lifting I always loved. But at the same time, you know, at a point you realize that it's not that important and it's the same thing for throwing as well is like you can't throw far every single day you can't lift heavy every single day and it's like understanding that yes you have the capability to do these like amazing things but at the same time those amazing things are not going to happen every single day and you have to be able to willing to just be consistent with what you're doing and trusting that in the moment that you set up a plan you set up you know you know your mental mental state for that moment that you'll go in and execute. So I feel like letting go of my pride and saying that I need to be good every single day, which, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not Ryan Krauser. I can't throw 21 mid to 22 meters on a bad day. Like I, I just can't do that. So like for me, it was like saying, all right, I can throw 19, 1950, you know, maybe more, but I need to be on my best day. And that, like, that's just something you have to kind of come to terms with at the same time is like, at some point you have to expect you have to understand like someone on their bad day is going to beat you on your good day and it's like accepting that and saying okay well well then what else can i do you know like wh how can i make sure that on their okay day uh, i'm close with them or i can beat them on like their okay day you know what i'm saying it's mm -hmm. not saying bad against yourself but it's also realizing that there are you know there are limitations sometimes to what you can do in the moment so it's like you want to plan for it as best you can to do the best that you can so but definitely letting pride go you know especially with my back that you know but like for other people it's like having the back injury sophomore year was something that took me the entirety of my career to trying to understand and how to work around and you know potentially make it better was that you know just saying there's certain things that are just not going to work and you just have to either work around them not not work through them number one not work through them because that's just not going to work you'll eventually just break down uh, and it's like working around them and also trying to like fix it at the same time while still moving in the direction of wanting to throw farther like that. And that, that took plenty of time. That took until my last year and then this year to really like solidify and understand that it's like, there are some things that you just, you got to bite the bullet on and say, I'm not going to do it because 
the risks with heavily outweigh the benefits to it. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that answers your question of the best line, Billy. <laughs> so for for those of you for those of people who are listening who don't know you as well as I do, can you go through your back injury, what it was, and kind of how it affected you on the day by day and in training? Okay, so uh, my in high school I had problems with my back. It was just back squats. The only exercise that will ever like that ever bothers it really was back squats. It was just my left SI joint just never would be right. Now my my hypothesis here is that my anterior and posterior oblique slings, which is basically like across your body, so you go from uh, like top upper left ab to bottom right ab that, that's the short version of it is either too is either strong or there's a lot more fascia developed on in one direction than the other especially for throwing since it is you know heavily favored towards one side for me that's how i took it and with back squats see if you have like a deadlift i'm being pulled down so i that rotation is going to be mitigated but then if i have back squat where the weight's on top of me and behind me it's it's going to like that I'm not having like a natural pull against where I want to rotate to. So then going down to the bottom of the squat, I'm it, it, at some point it was just going to get me. Now, the funny thing is when I did head, like super heavy weight, I never got hurt. That's because I had good bracing mechanics and like, I, I would never give up neutral spine to get up a weight. Like I'd rather just drop it and just say, fuck it, whatever. It doesn't matter. But like, I always would get hurt during like submaximal stuff, like 75 to 80% range. That's where I would get hurt every single time, starting from sophomore year, going all the way up. Like I never got bothered by like maxing out, but that was because I was so like, I was engaged as much as I can. So that, that's my thought process. It would still hurt. Like my my SI joint and like glute meat on the left side would always still like be sore or like super tight. And I just wouldn't really be able to do anything about it. But uh, yeah, it back would, it would mainly flare up for lifting. That's why I started to have to give away my pride towards lifting and saying that I really love doing it. But at the same time, if I want to be a better thrower, then I kind of have to, you know, give what, you know, take what I can get from it and then try and find other ways to improve. Um, but throwing would bother it sometimes. That was usually after I aggravated in the weight room. It would then, then bother me in throwing. Whenever I just block on the left side really hard or I'd like collapse into the left heel at the front, that, that's when it would usually give me a little little jolt to, reminding me that it was there. You know? mm-hmm. But um, uh, yeah, that was basically the, you know, I, I, I'm fortunate enough that that was really the only main injury that I had over my career because it, it is, you know, now that I look at it, it would have been easier to manage if I had trained a little bit differently from the beginning but you know that is what it is but yeah that, that, that's my back injury for you oh yeah sorry someone just texted me <laughs> no you're good so um my next little little spitball question is i wanted to know what were your like the highlights in the weight room so what were your like prs so like we'll go snatch clean uh, we never got lifted but then bench and then Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. How I, much can I, you press? The relevant question. No, I'm joking. I did, I did a deadlift at 475 for two when I was at home, and I will never do that again. That was that was like – I just imagine like some of those videos of the kids like with rounded spines, like, like, like something to herniate a disc like instantly right after. It was funny because I was doing drop sets that day, and I got – and my back started hurting after I did the drop sets, not during the actual maximal lift, which just supports that whole sub-maximal is where yeah. I die. 
But um, uh, bench was well before the summer. This summer, before I stopped training, was uh, three sixty five. Clean was three fifty five. Uh, clean and jerk three twenty five. I believe clean that three twenty five. That was junior year. That was when Hardu was doing clean and jerks for us, and I I, I actually loved it because it was just it made lifting interesting and it was kind of sub-maximal especially for the clean since three like you know 315 325 is you know pretty manageable the jerk was a little heavy but you know it was fun uh snatch 250 i get shit for that you know i'm just not really that strong i guess um and then squat 500 was the you know it was a comfortable 500 and i'll just i'm not doing that again anytime soon i don't really plan on it but you know who knows down the line but uh yeah back squat was five I don't really think there's anything any other lifts that mattered to me. I think I overhead pressed 225 once for one strict, but I'll never do that. Like that. Yeah. Shoulders were never my strong suit. Yeah, no, me neither. Unfortunately, which they should be, but you know that's that's how the life's going for me right now. Um, I want you well at your peak. So I'm gonna say my sophomore year, your fifth year. What was a day in training like? Uh, well, a day in training that, that year was pretty extensive. So I only had like four classes. I, I limited the class as much as I could. I had to stay on my mom's insurance, so I was forced to do four classes. But um, a day in the train, a day in the life of Corey Murphy during his fifth year. Uh, I'd probably I'd wake up. I'd have breakfast, probably like five eggs, you know, which just thinking about now makes me want to throw up. Um, like five eggs, a peanut butter and jelly, and probably like a protein shake to start off the day. Uh, then I'd bring two peanut butter and jellies for the day. I'd have a, another protein shake from the weight room that would be in there. Then the two PBJs for the middle of the day. Uh, then I'd have dinner, which was it, – it varied from – Chicken and cheese quesadillas, because I just hate eating stuff. Uh, or if I was doing good, I'd have like chicken, like chicken with potatoes and then like spinach. And then the other meal would be tacos because I just I, I just can't stand not eating shit that I don't like. And especially after I eat such a large quantity, like eating yeah. like just was not a possibility at the time. Like and that that so that was eating. Um, training, it would depend every other day I would have, um, so we'd have our, our throwing sessions and lifting sessions, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. But I think that once we got to January, we cut that down to three times, but every other day I would do either a lat workout because my left lat is just so underdeveloped comparatively to my right. So I would just literally do lats every other day. I remember. So I think like Monday, Tuesday, like. Monday, I would do a lat workout. Tuesday, I would not do a lat workout, but I'd still have all of our training session. Uh, Wednesday, I'd probably I would do a lat workout. Usually, like usually Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then Sunday, I would do like a recovery pump that would try and like get me ready for the next week. Uh, but so basically, on average, I'd have like two and a half to three sessions a day between uh, lifting throwing and then secondary lift just for my like for stuff that i was working on mm-hmm. and it definitely got to be where it was a big pain in the ass like i'd go to class i'd lift then i'd eat then i'd go to practice then i would lift again afterwards so it was a lot that's why i needed to eat so much and you know the 
quality of the food was definitely not 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 high, but you know, it is what it is. And then, uh, yeah, that was basically my days. It was just fucking track, 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 oh, track. And then, yeah, track at the end. You know that. that, yeah. that and then at the end of the night. Every day after dinner, I would basically be looking at my film from the day and like going over every throw or going over the best throw and seeing what things, you know, were better from the day before versus maybe better from a week before to a month before and seeing that gradual, trying to see that gradual change definitely keep me in tune with what was going on. And uh, mainly, though, it was hit, it was hit or miss. I, I, I'm a trial and error kind of guy, so like I'm not going to. Some people will be like, oh, I'm going to put this technical change in and I'm going to try it for a month. Uh, absolutely not. For me, it's just I, I don't really think that's how it works. I, I feel like if it's more efficient, it's it'll look right. Like, I, I didn't really care about the distance when I was doing this, but like it was more about trial and error and seeing what worked versus what didn't work and what felt better comparatively to what I normally do where I can I know it's wrong, but it feels right. And yeah, no. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, it looks bad, like, it, like, it goes further, but it doesn't look right, and it looks, like, wonky, uh, but, yeah, that would be my day, it would usually be just breakfast, lift, lunch, whatever classes I had, because they were usually either in the morning or middle of the day, and then practice, lift, eat, film, sleep, for the mm-hmm. that was, that, that was really my day, on average, and then weekends, you know, if we had a meet, it was one thing, or if it was during the early in the year, I'd usually do a lift on Saturday and then do another recovery lift on Sunday. I just, you know, it when you when you're, I feel like when you're at my stage, it's like it's not necessarily about doing a, the quantity. Like these sessions, like those lifting sessions in the morning, weren't like two hour sessions. They were maybe like 30, 30 minutes, forty five minutes, really to get my jump like jump start on the day, like movement for the day. So I'm not going to practice and like still tight and kind of having to take 30 to 45 minutes just to loosen up so I can get most out of those sessions. But, you know, just working on the things that I honestly just didn't want to take more time during the, like, if you can spread out your sessions as much as you can, like it makes it so much easier to be, it's, it's more palpable to take in. Like someone saying, Oh, it's three sessions. Yeah. But it's three sessions of the first one's 30 to 45 throwings and throwings maybe an hour you know depending on how how much the workout is beforehand and then the lift is another hour you know it's like oh it's only three hours but you try to do three hours of work straight through you get to a point where you just burn out it's not like burn out mentally but also burn out physically because by the you know after the first hour you, the work you're doing is not nearly as high quality as the first hour's work mm-hmm. so that was my thought process on it so yeah. that, that's a, that was a day in the life of uh, Corey. <laughs> Yeah, and you're one of the major proponents. Well, that in for me as a thrower of always looking at the film because as much technology as we have, I know a lot of people who are like, eh, with the film. But it's like if you can look at yourself and slow it down frame by frame and look at everything, even if you can, yeah, yeah, and find one thing technically that you can fix to make your throw better, like, why wouldn't you do that? Like, I know people who are just, like, straight meathead with it, and they're like, you know what, fuck, I'm just gonna throw and just see what happens. Like, you're not gonna get better like that. Yeah, exactly. I feel like it's a lot of, uh, you know, self-reflection when you're watching film, because you have to be, like, honest with yourself and seeing that this, something can get better, like, there's room for improvement there. I think that takes a lot of self-reflection and ability to do that. 
along with it, it is time, you know, it is a lot of time to, you know, sit there. And if you're going to look film, like you have to dedicate time to it and you really need to be paying attention and noticing things over time. Like the first time you watch film, you're going to be like, you know, I, I get it, but like, I don't see it. Like, I don't see, you know, why I need to do this every single day. But once you get to start, it's like anything. If you start doing it over and over and over again, you get much better at seeing like what needs to change or what things are doing well from the changes that you made previously. But I also think that film can be a negative thing. It definitely has been for me sometimes when you're like, you're so worried about the film that it's like not, you're not actually focusing on what needs to happen at the same time. Similar situation, you know, my freshman year with just not going into it and just throwing versus like, like you need to put, there there are two separate categories. When you throw, you're throwing. And then when you're watching film, you're watching film and trying to clean the technique up. Like that, that, that needs to be the, the disclaimer for some people because i know some people if you give them film way too early they're never actually in the throw and they're never they're, they're just thinking about technique versus like having that one cue that you're working on for the day and then going back later and you know seeing what happened and seeing mm-hmm. results from it but but definitely if you can't look at film and you're trying to be an elite athlete or, or an elite thrower i i just i don't know how you could do it unless you're you know magically gifted other than the that, next I, yuri sajic or the next like <laughs> the next krauser like just genetically yeah. out there but even then you have krauser who is from what i've heard of, from people who who know him his life is literally tracked so it's like yeah he's, he's good because like he's good you know i say good but quote like amazing but like he's that good because he he is the size he is he has the strength that he has along with the fact that he's as dedicated outside of what Outside of just the throwing session and outside of the lifting session, you know, yeah, comes down to that. Mm-hmm. But no, I wanted to get your uh, that's another thing going from like technical models and watching videos and cues. What is your thoughts on having technical models versus using technical cues? Because I know a lot of people are like, "Oh, I've watched Mac Wilkins since I was like out of the womb," but it's like all respect to Matt, he's great, but there's people, like, I have a poster right, literally right next to my computer. It's his throw from the 70th, from the from the Bicentennial Games from 1976, and it was a 67-meter throw. And then that was like, wow, that's crazy. Like, that was far. But if you look at the last Olympics and, like, the last two world championships outdoors, 67 might have placed you top six. Like, maybe. Like, there were six, there's guys, like, if you look at Stahl and Dakers and the one Latvian, I think he's a Latvian guy whose name I can't even pronounce, like, there's so many people above that. So what is your, like, thought process on technical cues versus a technical model? So for me, I'm definitely more of a copier than I am, like, like an innovator, 100%. I can see something, and it makes more sense to just, like, Yes, you're going to have, like, your own twists on things for sure and the ways that you understand and comprehend that movement pattern. But for me, I, I do like the idea of technical models, like, for or let, let me say technical framework. So, like, if you know Arate Throws Nation, that my junior mm-hmm. started, like, actually paying attention to that, like, that model or, or technical framework, the way I think of it, is, like, you have to achieve a certain thing in like a certain portion of the throw but like there are going to be some 
some give and take there. There's like a standard deviation mm-hmm. of what you're actually doing in those movements. And yeah, I guess in a perfect world, you'd want to be like right on par, but then there's also going to be individual differences between people where it's just not going to look like that. But uh, I, I definitely say that having a model is better than not having a model, but also understanding that a model needs to be able, it needs to be malleable. Like you can't, it's like you can look at one guy and say, I want it to look like that. But like, you also have to see that there's also flaws within that technical model. May They may be small, but they're still there. Like, all right. So for me, my technical model was, uh, aside from the pillars from Arate Throws Nation, was Dylan Armstrong. Like for me, like I would rather watch someone who throws efficiently and looks more like Jav than I would to look at someone who throws like a, throws like a shot putter. Like, it just makes more sense to me. Because for jab, you have to be efficient because the implement's light. So if you want it to go a distance, it needs to be, like, the force that you can produce is efficiently put into the implement. Uh So we're watching Dylan Armstrong. He hits that, like, the left shoulder's down, right shoulder's up, and he's going through the finish. But now this is, I think, his 2008 Olympics throw that that I would use for my model. But... You also have to notice that in his throw, he's falling back a little bit. Like there's there's a little bit of falling back. So like you have to take you have to see a model. So you have to understand what's going on first of all. You can't just say, oh, I'm gonna look at this person and I'm just gonna copy it because there's a reason they're doing everything that they're doing. Like no one does. Like if you're that good, you have a reason for the majority of things that are going on in your throw. It's just that's just what happens. So you have to be able to understand that from a third person perspective and see see those things for what it is, but then take the positive qualities out of it and then put it into your throw in a way that makes sense for you. Like you're not going to be able to copy one person's throw. I can never copy Reese Hoffa's throw. It won't happen. I can't heel turn out of the back. I don't, I, I don't know why you would, but for him, you know, supposedly he has like a fused ankle joint according to Abe. Well, we're going to go on that, but um, uh, like a fused ankle joint. So I would never do that. So that's like a personal thing that he has to you know, work with. Like I don't have to do it, so why would I ever do that? You know what I'm yeah. saying? So yeah, yeah, you have to think of it like that. For me, like that's what technical a technical model should be something you strive for, and but also seeing that there's going to be room for improvement on that technical model down the line. Yeah. I guess that was the simplest way. So wrap up my my rant. <laughs> yeah, because I I have a similar like se- kind of similar thought process, but it's also because like. I have a really weird build. You know what I you've you've known me for three years. I'm pushing six five, like six four and a half, six four and three quarters, whatever. Almost six five. I have really long arms, really long legs, and no torso. And there's not a lot of hammer throwers you find that are actually six five, like that are good good. Like I can think of maybe one. I mean, if you look at the US, all of our really really good hammer throwers i mean mccullough i think mccullough might be close to my height but he's also a two turner and has or three turner and has the absolute freakiest technique i've ever seen and just can work the work the ball like no one i've ever seen rudy is six one or two dan hall is six flat or six one like none of them are as tall as me so it's weird trying to find someone that looks like me to use as a model but what I do most of the time and what I've found works for me is I'll find similarities between the really, really good people and things that like it looks not it looks like they're doing. I know they're doing it, but things that they're doing and then kind of match that up and put that into my 
like perspective of throws, if that makes yeah. any sense. No, that, 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 that's exactly what you should be doing. You, you know, you can't take, sorry about that. No, you're good. All good. Uh, but if you can't, you're doing exactly what I think you should be doing. Like, you can't take anything verbatim and just say, well, this is going to work for me because no one's exactly your height, your build, your, like, like there are things that are going to make you an individual comparatively to them and the things that just work for them that may not work as efficiently for you. So you have to, you have to see it through a personal lens. You know, you have to see it through your lens before you try and see it through someone else's lens, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. But I feel like that, that, I feel like that's going to work for you. You know, you have a very set mind. You're like, all right, I think this is going to work, and you go with it. But sometimes that that might be the most important thing for someone. You just need to trust in what you're doing and and go on it. And whether that be a technical model or just be, you know, I think this is genuinely going to make me a better thrower. Then you go and do mm-hmm. it. You you live it out and you see what happens. You know, the best way to learn is to either find failure and then see this doesn't work, or have success and then continue moving on with it. Exactly. And another big thing that I feel like we both found, not at the same point, but I feel like probably around 2018, we had a big buy-in, I feel like. Because I feel like that was the point where you gripped and you're like, okay, what he's doing is working. And at the same point, like closer to May is when I was like, okay, I'm all in because it's working. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like you have to have... And what I'm saying is with coaching and coaching strategies and new coaches, it takes them a minute to find like the grip that they want to do with their athletes and their technical model and their everything like that. But once they figure it out and they have the athletes who are willing to buy in, I feel like that's when success starts happening. Because when I think it might have been like right around right before right before the last um Princeton meet I was like you know what Christian's here he's got Corey and Danielle doing good I'm just gonna go for it and I bought in and everything I would go up to him and ask him questions and do all that stuff and it was at that point that I started everything started to click and like oh you know not the 57 super far but 57 was coming easy and then even more indoors I was like what do you want feeling wise like and we would talk all the time about technique and like strength and stuff and how everything mixes together and then you know we started doing like at the very end we were doing the um the double length weight so we would take two of the lengths and i put them together just to make like a just to play with weird feeling because he was doing his um what does he call it non undulating non-linear linear periodization he was look i think it was i think the I think the U Mish coach is really big with that, with throwing like different weights and different implements in the same practice. But yeah, like yep. get getting into that, Christian was like, "All right, let's see what happens." And like, I was throwing that just as far as I was throwing the regular weight. So I mean, I knew I had more in the tank, but it was just like it got to the point where it just didn't happen. That's how this sport works. Like you're not gonna be peaking throwing PRs at every single solitary meet. Like the peak is programmed at a certain point in the year. Exactly. And when you're in high school, it's different where you can like, you know, most, most high school coaches aren't periodizing your training plan. It's like, no. you know, you're training, you're, you're doing your technical work, you're trying to get stronger at the same time, and then you peak. But like, when you get to college, and like, it, that's just not how it works. And it's like, no. you need to make the most of those few opportunities rather than say, oh, I need to throw well at Ocean Breeze. Now I need to throw well at 
uh, at Penn State. Now I need to throw well at, you know, Boston for the first time. Like, yeah. you, you want to say what's most important to you and where I'm going to get the most, like, you know, intrinsic motivation there and extrinsic and saying, well, I'm going to use that towards, you know, and put everything and stack the basket towards doing well at this one meet. And you yeah. have to not also get in your head and say, oh, well, I'm supposed to throw far at this meet, so I should. But, you know, that's also, you know, your own mental battle of trying to just say, I'm just going to let my body go in and do what it, I've been training for it to do. But, yeah, it did with, with definitely with Christian, once once he, like, was firm in what he wanted, you're going to see a lot more buy-in. And buy-in's the most important thing. You have – even, like I said, my high school coach, like, he told me after the fact. He was like, by your senior year, I had nothing new to tell you. Like, he literally told me, he was like, I literally told you the same exact thing over and over again because I didn't know how to help you. So, like, but I went from 54 to, like, 60-plus with the 64 magic magic throw. But, like, magic throw. you know, like, I, I got better, not because necessarily we were doing anything different than the year before, but it was because I just trusted in what he was telling me. And instead of me trying to you know, get, like, find the best, the be- like, the absolute best way to do something. It's saying, all right, I'm doing it this way, and I'm going to do it the best I can this way. Like, yeah. it, it, there's always going to be some little thing that could have made you a hair more efficient, and you could have thrown a hair further. Now, when you're, fu- when you're Ryan Krauser, those are the things that you focus on. But, yeah. like, when you're still developing as a thrower, and for the majority of your time, you know, for most people, you're still developing as a thrower the entire time. But, like, like, you need to think of it as, like, I need to get the most out of what I'm doing right now. And, like, you know, you just got to take it for what it is instead of trying to be perfect and then never actually realizing what you could have done in the first place if you had just done something a little less efficient, but you could, you know, you could buy into. Yeah. But, but especially for Christian, like, Christian's not a shot putter. So, like, he was never a shot putter. He was a jab thrower. So, like, for me, it was, like, at first I was, like, ah, maybe, I don't know, like, this is really questionable, like, you know, but then I was, like, well, Abel's also majorly a jab guy, and, you know, maybe it's just that I need to see it, you know, you have to take what you can from it, and, like, get as much from it, like, don't try and force, like, an outcome out of someone, like, don't try and make your coach this kind of coach, like, let them do the thing that they're really good at doing, and then try and, like, you know, interpret that in a way that makes you understand it, Now that Uh takes your own personal devotion into trying to understand it, but you know, you're going to get more out of it that way. So like buy in and just trusting, trusting what your coach or whoever's like telling you stuff, the more you can trust someone, the more you're going to do well, just based on buying alone, let alone like, cause if you're in the ring and, and like, you're going up with, you just had a bad throw and you talk to Christian, but you don't trust the word he says. And he tells you something, even if it's a hundred percent, right, but you don't trust it. You're yeah. going to have that you know that inkling of doubt the moment you go into the circle for the second time and that inkling of doubt is going to is going to stop you from doing what you could have done mm-hmm. you know like trying to remove as much of that doubt and saying you know what this is what he said i'm going to do it and we're just going to you know we're going to let it rock you know exactly that. Mm-hmm. but i feel like some people definitely never have that and they never let go of that doubt i know i'm very one to do that 100 percent. like it's hard for me to just completely trust someone in what they're saying rather than me going off on my own trying to you know trying to prove them wrong like that that that's just me but like once you stop doing that you just say you know this person knows what they're talking about and at the same time it's like it lets you focus on other things like it lets you focus on you know your lifting stuff it lets you focus on your nutrition it lets you focus on you know just your mental status in general like trying to like have the things that you can control and like let and like passing off responsibility to someone else you have uh-huh. a bit 
you're not doing everything at like like you know uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon is not doing everything at Amazon. You know what I'm saying? He's yeah. like, hey, I'm all right. You're good at this, so I'm going to let you do this. Uh, oh, you're good at you know advertising. All right, I'm going to give this to you to to advertise. It's like being able to separate the responsibilities of an athlete and give as much of them off to other people as you can, so you can focus on the things that you have full control over. So for me, that I feel like that that's something that. Some people think that it needs to be everything's on you, but at the same time, that's what the coach is there for. Like that's what that's what they're you want them to be there so you can let them do those things so you don't have to. But, yeah. And I feel like behind every great athlete, to a degree, I mean once you get to the top, it varies a little bit because I know people well not personally, but you know, I know of people who've thrown eighty meters in the hammer without a coach. And I know I think might have been Hoffa, either Hoffa or Nelson at one point didn't have a coach and they were still like going 22 plus and like just balling out. But for the major fundamental part, and especially in the NCAA, behind every great athlete is a coach who knows what the hell they're doing and has known what they're doing for a very long time. You have plenty of people you it can be done it's not saying it can't be done but it's saying that it is so much easier and more efficient when you have someone else taking something off your plate it's just that like sure there's going to be people who can throw 22 meters or throw 80 meters or throw 90 meters in jab or throw 70 meters in disc without a coach you know like it's like you've learned as an athlete to be your own coach in many scenarios so it's like you don't necessarily need a coach but it's like I'd rather have one. It's like, yeah. I can get, I can go to the grocery store without a car, but having a car makes it a lot easier. Exactly. You know? So like having that, like understanding that it's like, yeah, you can still get there, but why wouldn't I make it easier on myself? If I can, you know, let someone else do that for me. Cause that, that's what, that's what they're there for. That's what they're, yeah. they're doing for you. Exactly. Exactly. They're a good, they're a good coach. <laughs> yeah. Like a lot of the, like just looking off the top of my very vast and pointless knowledge of many useless things, looking at the NCAA and just the relays, like my, my favorite, not my favorite school, but my favorite team that has always been doing really well for the last couple of years has been Houston. And the reason besides all of their sprinters being absolute freaks, because they're all built like freight trains and can run like Superman. But they have Carl. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Carl Lewis is the coach there. I'm pretty sure Carl Lewis is, and he's got. They did a workout Wednesday, like two or three years ago. Um, Flow Track did, and he's got every little minutia planned out of their training and their day for like a month. But that's so much taken off the athletes that they can just be like, okay, the motions. That's what they get to do. Exactly. Yeah. They're a conduit of his mind and saying, exactly. all right, like. He has made their day. He has done everything for them. All they have to do is get in the, like, get in the car and, and let him drive. You know, yeah. I mean? that, that's what it comes down to. It's like that's why you have athletes like that because they don't have to do anything. Not 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 that they don't have to do anything, but like so much is taken off their plate. And that like that's why I compare it like I, I compare it to my situation where my mom and dad would do a majority of the things that I had to do. So that responsibility was off my back, so that I could just focus on training. Like. When you have that kind of scenario set up for someone, you're going to find success in them. But when you put, you know, and there's always going to be that one person that, you know, 
had every single thing go wrong and they put it all on their back and they, you know, trudged across the finish line, it's so much easier. And you, you can't say that it wasn't for someone who doesn't have those responsibilities to make their own plan, to mm-hmm. figure out what they're eating, to plan their entire day. Like when that's all done for you, it makes it a thousand times easier. Just, I have to just go and do it. Like, it's not like, that's like, it's like school comparatively to the real world. School is so easy comparatively to the real world. Real yeah. world gives you directions on how to do anything. You know, you, you could try and start up a business and then like, you know, a month in you realize you forgot something major that you were supposed to do because no one was there to tell you. Yeah. But then you go to school and it's like, all right, I just have to go to class, listen to the teacher and do the assignment that they gave me. And I'm going to learn, you know, yeah. to a degree. But like, you know, that it, it's so much easier in that sense and you can get so much more out of it versus like trying to learn something on your own when you're off on your own. It's like that, that learning process or that, that experience is so much different than when someone's guiding you through it. That's yeah. what it's supposed to be. To me, that's what a coach really is. It's a guide. They're supposed to guide you to your athletic potential. Like, yes, you're doing it, but they're also, you know, taking some of the other paths that you could have taken and saying, don't go down that one. Don't go down this one. This is the best one and go, you know, and travel it and see what mm-hmm. happens. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, no, you've covered basically everything I was going to say on that point. Like the coach really, and that's one of the things like a lot of people are like, Oh yeah, I want to go like X, Y, Z because this coach is like super duper great with this and that. But it's like, yes, everybody wants to go to a Don Babbitt or like, uh, a Lang or like an Art Venegas, but there's a lot of, and this is the thing, one of the reasons why I'm happy I am at Monmouth is a lot of people really overlook some of the smaller schools and the coaches that they have just because they're not like a USC or a Penn State or like that type of thing. Like some of those, not, not that I know this, but I'm just, this is just me gesticulating, just throwing thoughts in the air. I feel, and I've heard some of these coaches are just kind of like, okay, here's the implements go throw. Like they, they're known for producing really high level athletes, but the athletes come in at a high level anyway. So they've got a diamond and they're just polishing it up and throwing it back out and keeping training with them post collegiately for that reason. It comes down to this. It's like, you can go to a USC, like the, the, the benefits of going to those high name, like those esteemed schools that have established programs is that they have more resources for a coach to be able to utilize. But same token, if you can't utilize those resources to the best of their ability, then they're just as useless as not having them. So you have Mm -hmm. a moment where, you know, we we definitely have a lot. We, you know, we have an indoor track, we have an indoor facility. The only thing I'd say is we can have a jab, you know, indoor jab and indoor hammer. 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 You know, I've I've made comments about. Oh, yeah. Um, like we have a lot and we make the most of what we have. So like for me, it was the same thing in high school. We didn't have a lot, but my coach would make the most of whatever we did have. And it's like, you can go to those big name schools, but if they're not utilizing all the things that they could be utilizing, then it's just as useless as not having it. So going to Monmouth might've been the best decision for some people because it's like, you're going to get a coach who understands the limitations that have been put on them and saying, all right, I need to do the most with what I do have. And Mm -hmm. let's, far as we can with that so yeah. and you can have a coach that's the best coach in the world but if i mean you can have the best coach in the world with the least amount of materials to work with and they're still going to produce good athletes versus someone who can you know doesn't really know what they're doing and they go to a usc and they're the coach 
and they don't really produce any athletes. Like they have the athletes that were good in high school and they come and they're, you know, they're still better than the majority of people in college, but like they didn't get better. So what does that say? You know, like Mm -hmm. it's all like people have to look at it. Like for me, when I, like if I were to ever be a coach down the line, which I don't really plan on, but if I was going to be recruiting someone, what matters to me more is progression rather than like just absolute distances. Cause if you can look at the coach and say, well, you know, he threw 55 feet his sophomore year, but he didn't get better and all the way through his senior year. Then obviously there was something, there was a, there was a misstep, yeah. whether it be, you know, the athlete's fault or the coach's fault, you know, something wasn't going right there. So that doesn't really give you a lot of confidence, but say you get a guy who's, you know, a Jordan Geist and goes 70 feet in high school, 70 plus in high school. And then like when he first goes to college, he's throwing like 18 meters, but then gets back up to 22 like goes up to 22 like you know there was progression there you knew the coach had yeah. something to do with their success mm-hmm. yeah but that could, that could just be me you know maybe maybe these people are tapped out or they believe they're tapped out and that's as good as they're gonna get you know there's a lot of things that can be done but oh, yeah. too, like if you have a good coach it doesn't matter what scenario they're in they're a good coach like it doesn't exactly. matter the resources, you're gonna make uh-huh. the resources happen if you're that good of a coach. yeah but yeah that was Another rant. <laughs> yep. Another another little, little Murphy time. All right. So um, now another thing I wanted to talk to you about that no one ever talks about. How was competing your redshirt year? How was like, because you competed a lot of the meets we did. I mean, you were at UVA yeah. my sophomore year. You or yeah, because that was your... Yeah, I, I went there and didn't miss, almost miss the meet because I wasn't, I didn't look at the right calendar. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so how was, how was like traveling and being like a, being a pro athlete for like those two seasons? What was it like competing and like doing all well, that stuff? Uh, we'll say semi-pro at best. At, at, we'll, put, we'll use amateur. We'll say amateur. There we go. Um, I would say that for me, I feel like a redshirt year can be an extremely detrimental thing to a person's career as a whole. It can be a very negative thing or it can be a very positive thing. Like you need to take a redshirt year and not take it as, oh, it's just another year to train. It needs to be another year to like to improve upon the things that you couldn't do because you had competitions all the time. In college, you don't have as many competitions as you did in high school, but when you're a fifth year, you realize that you don't need that many competitions to get done what you needed to get done. Mm-hmm. When you, and when you have a redshirt year, like you're going to have a few competitions, and each one of those competitions has a goal in mind as to what you're getting done. And you also have to think of what I need to achieve in this year like or what the goal is of the year to, to get done, whether it be getting stronger, which I think is a stupid reason for the majority, unless you're like going from senior year to you know your redshirt year in college. like That would be an, ex, you know, an exception, saying I need to get stronger to make up for the change in weight. Okay. But, oh, you're saying going from... Going from I'm, senior in high school to red shirt yeah. your freshman year. Okay, I got you. Completely, because I went from throwing, you know, I, I threw 55 at the end of my freshman year, but then I blew up in terms of weight and strength going into my sophomore year, and I was already throwing 17 mid comfortable. So, yeah, I, I there's, a, there's definitely a place for that, like to take the year to build strength in certain scenarios. But if you're like – you know, you're a fourth year or you're, you're like a junior and you're going to redshirt your senior year to have a fifth year. Strength is not what you should be focusing on. Like you, you should have taken the last three years and gotten stronger, 
and like seeing the things that you need to really improve upon to like, that's like the roadblock between you getting from point A to point B. Like it's never that simple. I think some people think like, oh, well, it's another year to train and get better. Well, it needs to be a year that you like, you know what you couldn't fix before because you had other responsibilities. And now I can take that with those responsibilities off my plate and I can fix them. Uh I feel like a lot of people do not take the redshirt year the way it's supposed to, which is supposed to be almost like self-reflection, you know, in its most basic form and seeing what, what has worked in the past and what hasn't worked and what, what needs to change. And also understanding that, like understanding that concept of, I'm not going to have as many opportunities as I do when I'm in season on a team. Like, so for us, we'd have what, eight meets a year, eight meets per season, at least something like that. Yeah. Versus being a redshirt and saying, all right, I'm going to have two meets and both of those meets are going to be good. Like they're going to be good, high quality meets and I'm going to make the most of both those meets and that's going to be it. Yeah. Now, if you're going to USA's or going to something like, you, you, but like you have to understand that that needs to be that shift in focus from quantity to quality. Uh-huh. For yeah. me, that's how I took the year. I definitely took it as like, like I remember because I wanted to get stop doing the the down low when I was in my power position. Like I just oh, I hated the... the the super hunch. Like it was just like for me, I'd always done it, and it was just. Like trying to fix it in season is it literally would just make my meets just go to shit because I couldn't focus on it and I wanted to still throw for. But then when I had my retro year, I could focus on staying more upright. And if it didn't work, it didn't work. Like you know, if I, if it's during the week and it's like, oh, you know, it's not, I don't have a meet in three days that I'm just gonna embarrass myself at. Yeah. And then do this, so I have more time to like build something that takes a longer time to change without other things going on that's going to get in the way of that. I feel like some people don't redshirt and do it. And then there's some people who get worse because they don't train as hard because they're like, oh, I don't have a meet coming up. And then they come into that final year like they're, or the, the following year and they just don't – they're not even as good as they were when they left. So, you know, it, it definitely can go both ways, I feel mm-hmm. like. You need to, I, I feel like this is where you have to drop your pride when you, when you do a redshirt year and you're willing to do a redshirt year and say there are things I need to change, identify them, and then change them in the year that you have the train or in the season or, you know, and like if you have one season on one season off or something like that, take that Mm -hmm. time and really utilize it to the best of your ability versus saying, Oh, I have a year to not focus on it. It just wouldn't make. Mm -hmm. But do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, this year technically is a red shirt, but it was more of a force because of the coronavirus, And I did plan on taking one still so i have a little bit of deliberation with christian as i'm sure we've talked about this for like endless amounts of text messages back and forth me talking about you to like what should i do what's going on like xyz but yeah i do feel like some people take a red shirt as like i don't i mean for us it's a different story because if you're getting red shirted in like cross country or distance like i don't understand how that i guess you can just put on extra miles but for us it's like i feel like you can really like zero in on one like zero in on your week yeah like your technical like right now if i red shirted i already know in the back of my head what i want to what i'm worrying about like what what thing i want to focus on because i've been thinking about it for that long but at the same time, like, obviously not everyone's like you or like me or they want to be the best. Like, they're just kind of like, oh, I'm just here to, like, do this and do that. And, like, personally, to, I think. I'm just here to compete and, have, you know, be around a team and have fun. 
Yeah, and like party and shit, which is not my mentality at all. But anyway, um, I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite meet you have been to, indoor and outdoor, because they are two varying beasts. Um. Well, you know, like favorite memory. There's gonna be, you know, you have indoor max. You know, my fifth year. You know, I, nothing's gonna really compare to that. You know. Yeah. When the mighty Murphy cried. Yeah, when I cry, I'm fucking walking out of the circle crying because I, you know, hit NCAA qualifier in my last throw ever, you know, potentially for indoors. Um, but, like, favorite meets probably would be UVA my junior year. It'll never go away, you know. Um, definitely my favorite meet because I just, just came out fucking swinging that day. But, you know, there was a reason I came out swinging because I, I periodized wrong and peaked way too soon. But <laughs> so there's a little little knife in the back of that memory. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's funny though, because as much as those memories were great, like those meets really aren't like, they're not my favorite in the sense that they didn't really make me better. Like, mm-hmm. like it's funny. Cause you know, I always thought I literally went through college thinking if I'm an all American, it'll make me happy. Like it, that's simply what it was. It was like, I needed to prove to myself that I could be an all American. You know, if I put everything into it, I could do it. And so that's what it was for me. But like, you know, when, when you finally hit the success, it's not like, it's great. Don't get me wrong. It's absolutely a high. You can't rep, like you can't replace it with something else, but it's like, it's almost the moments of like just devastation and failure that make you really question whether you want to be doing it or not. Cause I remember mm-hmm. after year regionals, definitely not my favorite meet, but it was the most meaningful me because it made me really fucking look down, like, you know, look in the mirror and say, I, I like, I can do this, but like, I, like, I, like I messed up and now am I, am I willing to get back in the ring and, you know, ring, you know, you get with the boxing ring or, you know, the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, if you want to get back in there and go back after it, after you fail, like for me, like regionals junior year, biggest failure probably of my entire life. But you know, there was a reason I failed like period periodization wise, but that, and um, yeah, that was probably like, it, it probably my most memorable moment in terms of like, whether I was willing to keep going after it or not. Mm-hmm. So from my failures, I think I got the most out of it. Like yeah, the, the successes were great. Like UVA was, you know, a blast. It was fun. You know, first time I had uh, pulled pork and first time over 19 meters but, you know, then like Max throwing 1964 or regionals, you know, my for outdoors, my final year you know, mm-hmm. those memories. But like they didn't give me that much. It was just yeah. like confirmation of what I already knew. Like I, I knew I was capable of going to NCAAs day one out of like out of high school. Like I knew it. I knew it would take everything out of me. It would take every single, you know, ounce of energy to do it. But I knew it would be possible. So it was just confirmation of those those thoughts but mm-hmm. I get more out of like the most memorable moments are the ones where i really failed and i just look back and go you know what like there was something wrong and i can i can grow from this mm-hmm. and that, that you know maybe cliche but you know at the end of the day when i look back at it now that's how i look at it because no, i got know. you i know what you mean but yeah definitely, you know definitely maybe not the answer you're looking for but uva if we're just going straight memorable uva <laughs> no i just wanted to like your favorite well obviously that's your favorite for a reason because you're very driven like for me i mean obviously i'm 
I've only competed outdoors for two years and indoor, like, you know, hashtag ban the weight. But I mean, my favorite meets are meets where I didn't have a mark. Like I didn't have the physical mark, but I threw something like if you asked me what my favorite meet was indoors, everybody would think, oh, my God, he went off at max. Like he went 18, 1881 off his first throw. Like he was and that was I that was the first time I went Adam Nelson. I entered an altered mental state that I've never been able to recreate because I, that was terrifying. I had I had a bang and an uber monster. So I think 450, 500 grams of caffeine, milligrams of caffeine in my system. And I just, at, next time you see Heisman, ask him about the look I had in my eyes. He was like, you've never looked so terrifying in your life. But like most people are like, oh my God, it was definitely that. Nope. It was the home meet where I, th- where I like just, you know, Lottie da out of nowhere, just dropped a, a 20 plus meter warm up, And obviously it d- doesn't count for shit. Because it's not a marked throw, but it's like, I know I can do it. Or like yeah. at at regionals, first off, regionals is awesome. Love Florida. Got to see people throw really far, which I never get to do. And like, it was just, like, I had a warm up that was at like, I think it was like 60, 61 or 62. And like, couldn't get anything close to the competition. And I was like, listen, I'm here to just try. Like, I know that sounds like a shit attitude, but it's like, look, I would have, I would have had to climb like, 12 meters to make anything like it was just like do everything you can leave it all on the table and then just take two weeks off and start summer training and that's what i did but like like another another favorite moment for me as of right now in training was like a week or two before we left christian was like i want to see what you can do with a hammer i'm like cool okay i went out and i was like i think these are really far christian he's like all right cool and I hit one. He was like, wait. He's like, put something there. I'm like, okay. And he's like, him and Heisen measured it. And he wouldn't tell me what the mark was. And I'm pretty sure I threw over 64 that day. Like, he he wouldn't have he wouldn't have not told me if the number wasn't significant, like, over... Because he knows I want the record. But he wouldn't have told me if it was some, something that wasn't significant, you know? Yeah. So, like, just that mystery of was it there, like... That type of that those are my favorite meets. So I feel like we have the same a similar thought process process of what our like big memorable meets are. Yeah, yeah, hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah, yeah, I think like that's what makes us different than a lot of other people. So. Yeah, yeah, different mental process. Yeah, we're we're definitely on the out there side of uh, mental processes. But another question, and this is probably going to be the last like question that official question, but. What, like, when did you know that you had potential to be, like, top 16 in the NCAA? Like, when you were, you know, your last year indoors, you were, what did you, were you, thir- you were 13 for both, weren't you? Uh, 13th and 12th, I think. Yeah, something like that. Which, 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 at that point, it's like the same thing, but. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, you, you have to know day one. Like, you gotta know, like, you cannot, like, if you want to shoot for an extremely high goal, you know, extremely high goal with, you know, quotations around that mm-hmm. for whatever you think is an extremely high goal. Like, you have to be, like, you, you have to be set in it. Like, you're going to have, like, your 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 moments where you question it 100%. Like, but you need to, like, say, like, if it's possible, and if it is possible, I, I trust that I can do it. Like, mm-hmm. I felt, you know, I, I think, you know, freshman year it was a little questionable since I just only thrown, like, you know, 16, 80 yeah. years. I mean, or 17 low. So it was like, but that's also my first year throwing the 16. And well, previous year when I tried throwing the 16, I couldn't throw over 40. 
you know, yeah. in high school. So I would throw 60 and then throw 40 with a 16. So, like, there's definitely a learning curve there. But, like, I think just for sure, for sure I knew it was possible after my sophomore year when I threw 18 at Lehigh for the first time. Like, I'm a sophomore. I'm a, I'm a true sophomore, and I threw 18 meters when I only threw 60, basically 61, excluding my 64 in high school. Uh-huh. That doesn't, like, that, that transfer isn't the same. You know what I'm saying? No, yeah. So, like, I, I feel like if, if for that, I knew very early on that, like, that it was a possibility. It was, but I also knew that at the same time it was a possibility, it was also a, the possibility wasn't that large. Like, it wasn't like, there wasn't a lot of room for error. Like, Abe made that, made that apparent to me my, you know, my freshman and sophomore year. He's like, Corey, I, like, I need you to know, like, like, you're going for it. And I, I think, and I, think and know you can do it but like you also have to understand that there is not a lot of room for error when you're doing it you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. why i felt very like technically oriented was because i knew there's not a lot of room for me to just say ah i can leave that on the table and continue just doing what i'm doing like there wasn't a lot of that in my in my career like that just was not the thing that was able to be said by me and say i can get away with it like if i didn't have the year like if I didn't, my fifth year didn't run the way I ran it. I do not think I would have gotten as far as I did. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And like, I, and it's not even just about dedication. It's just about understanding that, like, for some people they can do things wrong, and you you need to accept that and say that's just what it is. Like Jordan Geis can cut his left foot out of the back and ride over his right. You know, he has a good like middle and front with right foot turning, but like he can get away with cutting that foot out of the back and getting over it. You watch me do that. God help me. I'm going to throw like 17 meters. Like, it's yeah. just not, but like, and that's why I think for some people, when you don't have that high goal, the amount of work you're going to put in to fix it is just smaller. So for me, like my goal is to be an NCAA all American whether it was second team or first team, whatever, I'll, you know, but you know, like that was my goal. And like, I knew in high school, I was top 16 in high school. So like if I were to transfer that over and that was my senior year, so like I wasn't that good in all my other years. So, but like my senior year, I was top 16. So I was like, by all, all stretches, you know, I should be, even if, you know, people are coming from other countries, but like, you know, I, I was top 16, so I should be able to make, get back to being top 16 by the time I'm done with my career. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, I understand. So, like, for me, like, I, I think it helped because in high school, I finished on a high note. So, I was like, you know, I, I finished on, like, I can do this. Like, it, you know, it took me the entirety of my high school career, but I but I did it. Like, and whenever mm-hmm. I needed to pull it through, like, I needed to pull something out of my ass, I pulled it out of my ass. Yeah. So, you know, in college, it wasn't really pulling it out of my ass anymore. It was, like, planned. But, like, you know, like having that definitely helped with the end of my high school career. But I, I feel like that's how I always was. Even, like, like, in high school, I didn't really have that high of goals. Like, my sophomore year, I was like, oh, I'm just doing this and having fun. And then my junior year, when I gave up wrestling, I was like, all right, if I'm going to give this up, I'm going to, like, I have to at least be all state. Like, that just has, just has to happen. Like, there's no – like, if I'm going to put this much time in, I'm, I'm going to be successful. And then, like, ending up being All-American, you know, yeah. New Balance American, where not everybody goes to it, you know. So it ended up being top six. But, you know, but, well, yeah, but realistically, if you think about it, like, all being an All-American in high school, like, except when you, like, win. All right, like, when you win, it's like, okay, well. In an Alyssa Wilson perspective, yes, I know exactly yeah. what you're trying to say. You're like, you were the best. But, like, 
when you're like me, where you're in that that middle range. Oh, not middle range. Well, you're in the top end, but you're at the bottom end of the top range. It's like you really have to you have to be in it. Like you you can't be like half in, half out. It's got to be a hundred percent. So like for me, I, I feel like I knew the entire time, but there were definitely moments of questioning. But you know. That's like with anything. If you want to have a successful business, like you need to be dedicated to that business and, you know, believe that you, your business is better than everybody else and you're going to do all the work to make sure it is that way. But uh-huh. the same way for sports, it's like if you want to be the best in your sport, you most likely can be, excluding, you know, Alex Messick. Not everyone can be a Olympic gold cha- gold medalist in shot, aka the guy from 90 Day Fiance. Um, but since Alex, just to give you a little forewarning, Alex has been fighting us saying that genetics don't really play a role in success. And I want to slap him in the face because that's like, as much as I would love to say, you know, love trumps all like, no, that's not how it works. Like dedication, not necessarily will not win out on everything. Yeah, but no, definitely not. That uh, the guy from 90 day fiance could be an Olympic gold medal swimmer. Which one? The potato looking dude? Potato. Like, no, he can't. Like, no. I, I, like, I trust that he could try really hard, but and then he goes, well, you know, there's been short swimmers. I'm like, yeah, there's been short swimmers, but they definitely still have like, like long, like long arms and a long torso relative to their body. Like, they still yeah. have things. Like, I don't. Know. Sorry, tangent. But no, no, I feel I'm like- gonna go off on that actually. Once you like going, and I told you we were gonna spitball a little bit, so this isn't gonna be like. It's going to be a little bit longer, but I don't really care. I always watch videos on people who are really good at shit that they do. And I'm not talking about us, like, from throwing. I'm talking about, like, Olympic lifting and sprinting and shit that's, like, we're highly tactical. Don't get me wrong, but we're also strength-oriented. But, like, you can look at people who, like, um, like Armani. Armani is one of my favorite examples. Um, Tomasz Stanek, the guy from Czechoslovakia. They have really weird technique that only works for them. I don't. I've never seen anyone else throw like like Stonic or like Romani, but they both throw over twenty two meters. Yeah. Like if you look at my my other example, look at Klokov. Have you ever seen the way he stands when he when he pulls? It's funny because I actually used to snatch like that my sophomore year. Really, you did? I liked it with my feet really close together when I snatched. And staggered, right? Yeah, it was like literally like right here, right next to each other, and. Uh, Amanda, you, I feel like Amanda would look at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just going to do it. But, but yeah. anyways. But those, like, going on the, the Alex Messick, you know, hashtag Alex Danger Messick uh, tangent about genetics, that's the genetic 1%. Like, yeah. those are the, like, but there's, so like, like, a hang- way with inefficiency, and it's fine. And, like, exactly. And that's what it is. Like, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not going to hate on them for 22 meters. But, like, that, there there is a realisticness to that as well like you can get like all right look at the guy uh uh what is it, the the heavy heavy olympic weightlifter lock uh lasha oh lasha talahats yeah lash is a freak like, like he's really efficient but like from what i've seen he looks really efficient. very efficient. he's also very genetically like predisposition to being good like he's just like that's just what it is so like you're you're gonna have like you're going to have those exceptions where they can be inefficient in what they do. And they're still going to be better than the 99%. Exactly. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. There's not, it's not like every, I'm, I'm hating. On, I used to hate on it hundred percent. Now I don't hate on it, but it's just like, you have to accept that. And you have to see that there, that real, the realism of that is there. Like there's going to be people who don't do as well as you do. And they're still going to be better than you based on nothing solely on that. They 
put in. Like, there's just, like, it, nothing that they did. The, it's like saying someone who's, like, just like, their parents are super rich. So, like, they end up being, like, super rich because they have more opportunities. Like, exactly. Like, like you can't hate on them for, like, what are you going to say? Oh, you should be poor and try and get rich. Like, no. Like, yeah. You're gonna, well, like, I hope you make the most of it. Like, I hope you make the most out of, you know, being in a better position than someone else. Like, that's just what it has to be. That yeah. was the comment that it's like it's not about genetics and like if, there, if i did certain things that other people did i would not be successful exactly because, you know the limitations that mom and dad gave me through you know genetics there's just like oh. yeah I, like i had there's gonna be strong suits like it's not saying you have to focus on the negatives of what whatever this like the athletes dealing with you there's definitely going to be a positive there that you can play on in many oh scenarios. yeah but there's like an also absolute where it's like if they had all good like you know like their framework was really good they have not high amount of power output as a you know as an olympic lifter or as a thrower uh -huh. like and like then they also have a technical mindset and they have like mental fortitude like if they have all of those things versus someone who doesn't have all of those things they're going to win like uh -huh. like you know yeah. It's like saying oh well yeah there's a chance that they fall and break their leg in the circle and then you beat them like well yeah, yeah. Well, you can say that about anything. You can say that, like, you know, I, I don't know. It's like you that you could be going down the side of the road and you see a briefcase and there was a, a briefcase with a million dollars in it. Well, yeah, that could happen, I guess, but it doesn't mean doesn't yeah, mean the likelihood. Happen. Yeah, like the likelihood of that is uh, pretty low. Yeah, no, and like that's the and like that's why, and it's gonna roll all the way back to technical models. But like, there's so many. Like, obviously, I'm not amazing. I'm okay. I'm still like I'm decent. But I have people come up to me and they're like, <laughs> "Exactly, I'm tra I'm still trash. Jersey trash clothing. Hashtag John Calness. But um, people are always like, "Oh, like who do you watch? Like this, that, and the third. And I'm like, uh, "Like uh, people. I'm like, oh, you watch Koji? Like don't watch Koji. Don't watch Koji. Don't watch. Don't watch Koji. It's like people are like, "Oh my God, guys is so good. I'm gonna try and like do his technique. Like, don't do that because." Saw a guy who did geist form to the T. Kid was like point point in case. Kid was like five two, five three, and he only threw like fourteen meters. I, I it was actually surprised. I was like, wow, he's actually like like his form is good, and like his right foot would turn, and I'd be like, still going fourteen meters. Guess why? Because he's not fucking Jordan Geist. No, like <laughs> that's my favorite thing. Like if you look at so when I look at Koji and Jordan, they're very very similar in in. Similar in their like similar in their similarities. I don't know exactly trying to say, but if you look at them, they are both. They come from high level, high high level athletes. Like Jordan's dad was a a seventy high meter javelin thrower at Slippery Rock, and his mom threw like I think seventeen fifty and shot. No way! I, I actually never knew this. I knew they were throwers. I didn't know how both, good they were, or they were good or not. No, they're they were both very very good. And, like, you look at it, it's, like, genetic, like, genetic predisposition is already there when you have kids, when, like, you, those two have kids. Like, the same thing with well, Koji. If you find that epigenetics can be passed down, for sure, from parent to offspring, then for sure. Then these yeah, are no. positions. 100%. Like, Sorry. or, like, if you look at Ko Koji's, before Koji had the Japanese hammer record, his dad had it, and his mom was, a, like, a champion Japanese figure skater. Like, she was, like top yeah, of the top figure skating. Athletics. Like they come from an athletic yeah. 
background and a high level athletic background at that. And it's like, yeah, sure. They can do things that other people can't because of that, you know, that predisposition to being good. Like, and it's just, that's, that's like saying Krauser, like Krauser's entire family. Weren't they all good track and field athletes or sure. athletes in general? The generation like, before him were all Olympians. His, his uncle was a javelin thrower. His dad was a shot thrower. And his aunt was a javelin thrower. And then look at his family. You have, yeah. I forget, Dean. Yeah. I think it might be Dean. Because Dean's his Dean, Dean's one of his dad or his uncle. And then he's got a cousin who was a javelin thrower. And then Haley Krauser was his other cousin who was also... A, and they were all All-Americans. Like, Yeah, exactly. But that, but that's what I'm saying. is like that, that It has it plays a role. It's not, it's not like cause and effect. I feel like that's what I and some people will say. It's not cause and effect. It'll never be like that. But correlation-wise, there's a high correlation between having like like high-level athletes as parents and then having high-level athletes as kids. Like it's just, and that is the like, it's the realism of it. Like I don't know whether that be from like uh, what is it, nurture, nature, or nurture. Yeah, but like in both scenarios, they have they're 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 above someone else. Yeah, it's like, or it's like, or in that environment. Like my, I have two examples that I just found out about that, like, that go with this whole epigenetic like freak thing. The Rock, I okay, everybody's like, oh my god, it's huge. Like, how does he? Oh, he's on steroids. I don't care if he was on steroids. He comes from a family of NFL athletes and WWE wrestlers. Like, not even W, like world wrestlers. So his mom's brothers were like super famous Samoan wrestlers like huge dudes his dad was the first black WWF wrestler and two of his cousins played like pro NFL football with those genetics no wonder he looks like a house like like, of course it's there and then like I always wondered this is from a straight me hammer thrower and I'm sure like any hammer thrower between 40 years old and 21 there's the same thing it's like if you ever look at judd logan all respect to judd like super great through 80 meters well i think he's like number three or four all time in the weight like freak athlete but i was listening to uh kibway's kibway's podcast about him a couple weeks ago and he was like yeah you know my dad was a uh, it was like it was like an all American in football D one. His uncle played for the Steelers, and his cousin was like a silver medal Greco Roman wrestler, or something. I'm like, no wonder the man was like a freak hammer thrower, and like he he always to me looked stiff throwing hammer, but still he made the thing go. And I'm like, no wonder he was so strong and so good because. The genet- you can just see through the line of the rest of his family, the genetics are there. Like, genetics play, I feel like, unless you're, like, like, I'm trying like, to, like, unless, For a lot of people, it's, like, you, you can have, like, that, see the genetic line and see, like, that they had athletes beforehand. Or that they, they've always had those genetics, they've just never been played to. Like, they've never been, like, developed into an athlete. Like, you, you, you can you can say that about anyone or anything. Mm-hmm. But, like, like, you... You can probably predict that someone's going to be an athlete or not based on like who their parents are, or you know, there's always going to be the one person that they don't have any athletes and they just ended up being this god of an athlete. I feel like that's you in your scenario, low key. Supposedly, my grandpa was really good at sports. It just my dad just missed all of it, and I like 
But, you know, at the same time, it's like – and my uncle was, like, supposedly, like, a really good high school sprinter. I, I don't know how good, but, you know, I, obviously the translation. Yeah. Know, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, I got you. Uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I guess I had that going for me. <laughs> I was like, well, there's, there was someone athletic, so I, I guess I can get away with it. But, like, on mm-hmm. my mom's side, there was no one who was an athlete. Everyone didn't do anything. So it's like, you know – I don't know. It's it's it plays an important role, but you also have to understand that it goes very much farther than that because without genetic, like if you have genetics, doesn't mean you're going to be good or going to be bad. It just means that like you have that like in your reserve tank. It's like if you were driving cross country and you're starting out with another, you know, ten gallons of gas in the in the gas tank. Like you're going to go further than somebody who didn't start out with ten. You know, it, I, I don't know. It's like some some example like that. It's like it doesn't mean something's going to happen, but it means it might be possible. To happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else? That's fun. Yeah. Are there any other I... things you wanted to say before we uh, close this John out? Uh... Any other little things? Any Murphyisms? Anything? Um. Focus on the important things before you focus on the smaller things. Like a lot of people will be like, "Oh, nutrition, nutrition, nutrition." But like, you can have perfect nutrition, perfect training principles in the weight room. But if you can't throw far, if you can't throw because you don't have good technique, then all that shit doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it's real. Like, because some people will be like, "All these things that are not the thing you're doing." Like, you need to be the best at what you're doing, and then focus on everything else. You know, like if you want to be a good football player. You need to be good at playing football before you then could try and like maximize your football potential. Yeah, exactly. Other sport, but like you need to be good at the thing. Like just because you have all those things around it to make you technically good does not necessarily mean you're going to be good at what you're doing. So mm-hmm. like, like focusing on the things that matter most importantly. Like if you're going to throw far, having good technique is probably seventy five percent of whether you're going to throw far. Or yeah. 50- or 50 to 75 percent of how you're going to throw is going to be dependent on your technique alone so get that right before you start saying oh well, all these other things are important because that's how i did it it was like i'd rather focus on like nutrition it was never a huge thing like i definitely focused on getting enough protein but like in terms of like micronutrients like that was never fucking a thing like yeah that's like okay sorry i'm not an ibbf pro bodybuilder maybe i could have been a lot better if i focused on that. who knows but you know it's like that's what it is you know but uh, I guess other than that, I don't have anything else to say. I, I, I've spoken my, I've spoken my truth, whatever that, right. whatever that is. But all right, Corey, thank you for your time. I appreciate it, bro. All right, Montel. Take uh, it easy. Look forward to getting a text to you. Text from you. All, all right. right. See you, Clark.